is awesome to be in a room with so many people. It seems like every week there's just a few more of you here with us live. And so I say to you all, welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome back to church live and in person. It is so great to see you all. Even if the room's a little darker, you know what? It's great. It helps keep the reflection off the screen from your eyes right now. Um, but it is so great to be here together. And I can't wait just a couple more weeks. In Jesus' name, just a couple more weeks, and we'll see the end of step three, and we'll be into being open. Um, and I just want you to know that no matter where you stand on or how you've dealt with COVID-19 over the last, how many years is it now? Two years? <laughs> over the last what, a while, we'll just call it a while, this period of time, no matter how you've dealt with it, whether... Um, whether it's not affected you all that much or whether you've had to guard yourself carefully because of health concerns and things like that, there is a place for you here. And if you're on Zoom still and you haven't been able to make it back with us yet, there will be a place for you here. If you are hesitant, if you still need to wear a mask, if you need to uh, keep your distance in order to stay safe, but you desperately want to be with us, there is space for you here. And we want to welcome all of you. There is, uh, there's no passport needed to get into the church. Your passport looks an awful lot like a cross. And uh, so Jesus made the way for us all to gather together. So um, there's only one type of citizen here, and that's uh, anybody and everybody who God wants to bring to us. So we're so excited for that. Now, this series that we're in, I'd love to say that it's a series that it's just like, man, isn't this awesome? We're just digging in, and it's so wonderful. But it's a tough series because it's about spiritual conflict. And I don't know about you, but whenever you dive into a topic like this and start to study what God has uh, for us to understand about spiritual conflict, it often results in you actually having to deal with real spiritual con conflict in your life. Because one of the things the enemy wants us to do is to believe that there is no spiritual conflict that we need to wrestle out. He wants us just to believe that it's a natural world. What happens, happens, and you just deal with it and you go on with life. That there's nothing that you can do in order to change the situations that we're in. But that's not what we believe. That's not who we believe God to be. That he's passive and not paying attention and not engaged and involved in our lives. How could we think that? If this God that we serve decided to come to earth in human form in order to pay the penalty of sin for us to be reunited with him. He desperately wants to engage with us in our walk. And so we dive into this series knowing that it's going to bring us to wrestling. It's going to bring us to working out conflict. It's going to highlight some things in our lives that we thought maybe were just, you know, the warts of life that we deal with, but instead they're not. They're actually conflict that we can have victory in that God's going to lead us to. And so my prayer is that as we wrestle this out together, that you do see that there is a victorious life that we can live, both individually, yourselves, and us corporately as the church. There's a both and to this process. There's, this can affect us both individually, 
but corporately as well. We have an identity as Life Center here in Cornwall. We have an identity that we together live out and adopt as who we are. And both can be, be attacked, both can be detracted, both can be uh, you know, affected by spiritual conflict. And so we are learning how to stand in authority, move forward with God and what he has for us in this series. Last week, we looked at the big story of Scripture and how God is weaving the story and how it all begins with God. It doesn't begin with the fall. It doesn't begin with brokenness. It doesn't begin with pain and suffering. It begins with a loving creator who's living in community. And that story, is our story, is all about the return to that and how God wants us to return to that place. This week, we're, we're turning and we're looking at a portion of the big sermon that Jesus tells, the Sermon on the Mount. And at least what we're going to do is we're going to look at some important descriptions of us in it that highlight who we are, that highlight the power of Jesus, not only for himself, but who we can be together in unity, what he has for us. Now, there's a quote by Douglas Jones that I'd like to read here. And it says this, Followers of the Sermon on the Mount have long noted how anti-individualistic it is. People who finally stumble or are dragged to the way of the cross often attempt to live this sermon out on their own. They might repudiate mammon, which is like the idea of wanting money and materialism and, and serving like the God of, of that. They might repudiate mammon and begin to trying to deliver the homeless. They might give up on savings and live simply by themselves. They might refuse violence and give more charity to the poor. But in a very important way, this misses Christ's teaching. The sermon is not a code for individual behavior. It is given to the church, to followers of Jesus. And it is the church, uh, and the church has to take the lead in living it in community. People who try it on their own quickly burn out. It is made to crush the individual, but give life to the church. That last sentence, it is made to crush the individual, but give life to the church. Now, you may be sitting here going like, wow, really? The Sermon on the Mount is meant to crush the individual? I know, don't know if I really got that from it that's supposed to crush me, but only live out in the life of the church. But when you think about it, when you think about all those things that it talks about in there, uh, the blesseds and the, the lifestyle that we're supposed to live and the, what God aspires us to be, how many times do we try to live that all out on our own, in our own strength, and it tires us to no end to try and live up to some standard by ourselves? It reminded me of uh, a movie that, that uh, I haven't watched in, in seemingly forever, but maybe you've seen it, the movie Schindler's List, all right? And it, it, it struck me, I remember watching it for the first time, and it got to the point near the end of the movie where... Uh, where Schindler is sitting there and he's, he's contemplating all the things that he still has in his possession that he could have sold, turned into money that would have paid for the freedom of more Jews. He's sitting there and he's taking off his watch and he's like, this watch, this watch, this could have got so many people. This could have got so many, this ring could have got, and he's, and I, it moved me in that moment 
for the, the idea of personal sacrifice and what it takes and what we can all do. But in reflecting on this message, it also drove me to the fact that it's not an individual thing. It's not something that we do in and of ourselves. The guilt that he may have felt in those moments of going, but I could have done so much more, is the guilt that we find when we do exactly this. We try to do all of these things in our own strength by ourselves. We see it as an individual behavior versus our collective behavior. In Matthew 5, 13 and 14, it says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I want you to notice the first two words in there, in the, those preceding verses. You are. Seems to be uh, right there. It's, it seems like he's talking directly to you. You are. Now, at this point, we could be like, all right, buckle up. Here we are. We're getting, in, we're getting ready for one of those sermons that is going to blast us and tell us how we need to pull up our socks and, you know, tighten our waistbands because we're not living up to a standard. Right? One of those good old-fashioned, you know, disciplined sermons. This is not what this is. That you are right there is a collective you. If we were to look at what he's saying, what Jesus was saying in the original language, uh, it, it changes a little bit because it's not a singular you. It is a you are. This is Jesus talking to uh, 5,000 people, a ton of people on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking to a multitude of people and he's saying, you are, if you're following me, if you're following the way of Jesus, if you're entering into the kingdom of God, you are the salt of the earth. It's not an individual declaration, but a collective identity. He isn't talking to a single person, but all who would have hearts to hear and follow him. He's talking to us. Now, Jesus uses three examples in that, those two verses there. He uses salt, light, and cities. And those things, their character or their properties aren't measured really individually, are they? We don't think of those things in, a, in a, a singular format, do we? No one preserves food or seasons food with a single grain of salt, do you? Unless you're on some really crazy low-sodium diet, you don't take tweezers out, grab one grain of salt, and plop it on your, your food and go, oh, it's perfect now. Nobody's going and grabbing French fries and putting one grain of salt on their fries and going, that's seasoned perfectly, right? If anything, it's like we're like shaking, shaking, and then we forgot how long we were shaking, right? Salt is not measured by its individual grains. No one considers a single dwelling a city, no matter how large your family is. You don't think of it as a city, that one house you think of multiple, multiple homes growing and growing in a community that becomes that city. No one thinks of light as something that can be just divided up, cut up, or grabbed in your hands. I can't grab the light that's shining on me and hold it in any individual place. It's just, it's just here, right? That's how we see light. Collected 
Grains of salt preserve and flavor. Many lights shine brighter and push back the darkness. Many dwellings develop into a vibrant city. Now, when on their own, none of those things, the properties don't change. One grain of salt isn't any different than all the rest of the salt in the salt shaker, right? But their effectiveness can be greatly reduced. In terms of spiritual conflict, our enemy is looking to do just that. He's looking to reduce our effectiveness to nothing. He wants to splinter, isolate, deceive us, destroying our cities, extinguishing our light, and losing our flavor. Ironically, the English word or phrase that we use, losing the flavor, it comes from a Greek term that we translate into English as this, moron. (laughs) Moron or foolish. Foolish. The the word that's used in there to talk about the salt losing its saltiness and, and becoming useless is basically that, foolish, being a moron. The Greek word, if you want to look it up, is moreno, M-O-R-A-I-N-O, if you want to fact-check me. It's, it's there. Proverbs describes someone as foolish, as one who lacks the fear of the Lord, rejecting how God defines good and evil in exchange for a self-defined way of defining good and evil. And this is what uh, Dr. Turk said. He said, the point is this. It's dangerously easy for Christians to lose their salty, preserving influence in the world. Now, while many believers are are pungent and salty, there are others who are virtually indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. We, as salt, become worthless when the world influences us and does more harm to us than we influence and do good in this world. Now, like I said, just salt is salt. And in Jesus, the enemy can't change who you are, but he can make us ineffective. See, we never lose our worth to Christ, but in a world that needs salt, we can become worthless and diluted, overcome by the cares of this world. We can become an offense even in, the own, in our own church. We can be wounded and unhealed and not looking to become healed in our churches. In this way, Satan can rob you of your purpose. He can rob us of our purpose. He can kill your joy and kill our joy. He can steal your contribution to the body of Christ and destroy all God desires to use in your life on this earth, in our church, in this city. This world, the flesh, our enemy. Here's the thing. He's not to be feared. None of those things are to be feared. But it does require awareness. It does require us to be cunning and sharp and knowing what our enemy is about. So how does the enemy desire to see your influence become worthless? To see you lose your flavor? Or maybe like this. How might the evil one try and take you out? Take us out. James, in his letter, outlines the progression of the enemy's plans. 
That's a great thing about our enemy is that he, he lays his cards. He's playing with his cards showing all the time. He's not creating anything new. He, he tries to bluff us, but if we're open and we're aware and we're listening to the Holy Spirit, we can see the cards he's been dealt and we can see the hand he's playing. And this is what it says in James. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So let's just break that down there. Number one, trial creates doubt. Trials create doubt. Doubting God, his plan, his trustworthiness. When, I, when we have this idea of what life should be and then trials hit, what does it make us do? Doubt the path that we were on. And when that happens... It can, it can, it doesn't have to, but it can lead to temptation because we're on this plan with God and we think things should go this way. Trials hit and what do we start to do? We're tempted to find a different way. We're tempted to find a different path. We're tempted to find a path of least resistance because this trial is a resistance that I don't want to face. And so where's an easier way to go? We look for those alternatives because of that doubt, and we're tempted by them. And our own desire then gives into that, and it becomes that sin when we act or dwell on those desires. And sin grows, and it only has one destination, death. Jackie Hill Perry sums it up with this statement. You can simply believe God's word is true, or you can trust Satan's words to be true. Now, doesn't that sound nice and easy? So simple, right? You can just simply trust God or you can follow Satan and the words that he's spewing. How can God have such an expectation that we just simply believe and all is good? Well, here's the thing. The reality is, is that we follow a God Or if you're here today, I invite you to join us in following a God. Consider following a God who knows what it's like to face temptation. See, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything and face anything that he himself has not faced. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it says this, For we do not have a high priest, which is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now you may ask, did Jesus really face the temptations we do? Was he tempted to deviate from his father's plans like we are? How did he remain steadfast under trial? Did he have 
did he have late night drive through that you could just go and get food at that's not healthy for you? Did he have the temptations of being able to turn on Netflix anytime he wanted to? Did he have internet access 24-7 that has a world of gross things that are available for us to stumble and fall on? Did he have all those things? Did he face temptation the way I do? Was anybody knocking on his door saying, I'll give you this credit card at a super low rate. All you have to do is sign on this bottom line. You know, did he face the temptations that we face? Well, obviously, it's contextual for his day and age. But he faced temptation nonetheless. And the temptations he faced, they were huge for him. So let's take a look at what it looks like to face these temptations and for John 2, 15 and 16, it outlines the three areas where Jesus and we are tempted by the enemy. Temptations that we could say are common to mankind. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those three things, the desires of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three areas that are common to man that we are tempted in. And Jesus was as well. In the wilderness, after, being, after having a spectacular moment of being baptized in, in the, the, the Jordan and having uh, the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and his father bless him audibly in front of everybody saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Right after that moment, he is sent by the Spirit to the desert to be tempted 40 days and nights. He's undergoing temptation that whole time. This is a significant trial. Just think, Eve, she couldn't stand one question in the garden from the enemy. Did he really say you're going to die? And now Adam was just as bad. But Jesus, he's not Eve, and he is our better Adam, is he not? We see in the, the people of Israel this pattern repeating of not being able to fall through because of their hard hardness. They wandered 40 years in the desert. But again, even though they were a promised people, our promised Savior, Jesus, is greater. Let's look at how he dealt with these temptations. Matthew 4, we'll find uh, this account. Matthew 4, 1 to 4 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I, I can understand that. 40 days in the desert with nothing to eat, I'd be hungry too. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, the temptation here is this, that we use our choice or we use our power for self-driven purposes. We use our gifts and our abilities for ourselves versus what God would have us use them for. See, that is not what the Son of Man or the Son of God had come to do. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. This trial 
is rooted in hunger. 40 days in the, in the desert. He's like famished. He's probably a little faint. He's probably a little lightheaded, right? And he's, he's dealing with all of that. That's where the, the trial is based. But the temptation is rooted in identity. If you are the son of God. If you're the son of God, if you have this power, you can say to those rocks, become bread. And they'll be bread. And you can just eat. And you can deal with this hunger now that your fast is over. You can just do those things for yourself. He's tempted to use that power, that identity, that God-given identity for himself. But Jesus answers Satan by affirming who the Father is in his life, that he is his provider, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He doesn't have to use this power for himself, nor prove anything uh, that his father has already declared himself to be. This is the desires of the flesh. They're temptations for you and I to do for ourselves rather than to trust God for us. That trust God, he's going to be the one that provides for us. He's going to be the one that shows us how he's going to lead us and guide us and give us what we need. We're tempted to use our gifts, our talents for our own uh, purposes. Satan doesn't mind you using your God-given gifts if they're for your own benefit. He doesn't mind you prospering and, and taking advantage of all the gifts that you've been given if they're only for yourself and not a blessing for others. There's a word for this temptation, and it sounds... Uh, it sounds bad, right? It sounds, when we hear it, we, we think, ooh, that, that, that can't be me. Hedonism, right? We, we don't want to hear that word and think that it could ever apply to ourselves, but it's when you make life all about whatever you want in any given moment, the pursuit of pleasure or self-indulgence. And we usually want to take that and go, like, to the extreme where it's, like, people only, only, like, they're so narcissistically selfish that everything they could do, they do for themselves. But when we think about it, if it's the big things in our life, the big rock moments in our life, and it's all about this, this short-term life that we live here on earth, and it's all about our position in that versus where God is leading and guiding us, it's the same thing. So what's our defense to this temptation? Our defense to this temptation is integrity. Integrity. It's, it's seeing that the self-discipline of knowing who we are in God, who God has made us to be, and what he wants us to do. And not doing things for ourselves and doing things for our own pleasure, but doing things for who God wants us to be. It's integrity, both personally and as the church. If we were doing things for our, ourselves as Life Center here and we just wanted to have our own little group and keep all of our gifts to ourselves and all the things that we have going on for ourselves here and not for the community at large, that would not be what God intended for us to do. But it can become so easy for us to just want to take care of ourselves versus always have that open door and always be looking to see what God would have us do with the gifts and talents that he's given us. The second temptation that we see Jesus facing is the pride of life. The enemy has raised him up uh, to the temple. And you see, God had a plan to raise Jesus up, right? We know this. And the thing is that God's plan to raise him up looked so drastically different. 
where Satan took him to the top of the temple and, and had him look down, Jesus, by his father, was going to be led to Golgotha, to a hill overlooking the city, to a cross where he was going to look down and how his sacrifice was going to be something. He was lifted up in sacrifice as an act of love, not on a temple, in a selfish and needless act of showing off. Because what was his temptation there? Throw yourself off. Throw yourself off, right? The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The temptation there was, Throw yourself off the temple, Jesus. You're going you're gonna to fall down, but then your angels are going to pick you up. They're going to collect you. They're, not, they're just going to set you down nice and gently on the ground right in front of everybody. And the, this supernatural act, this amazing act of this happening is going to wow everybody, and it's going to give you what you want. It's going to give you uh, this, this pride of life. Everybody's going to see what you are and who you can be and what you can do. But we don't put God to the test, do we? Because what do we know about our own nature in those moments? What do we read in the Bible about what happened with signs and wonders by Jesus? What did everybody say when Jesus would produce a sign and a wonder? They'd say, what? Show us another sign. Show us another sign. Give us another sign. They would just keep asking for more and more signs. Do not test. Do not put your Lord God to the test. Yet when it suits his purpose, we see here the enemy misuses Scripture for manipulation. Because what he said there was true. He's quoting Psalm 91 to Jesus. He's, he's quoting Psalm 91 verse 11 to him. But Jesus, here's the thing. Like, I don't understand how Satan misses this. Jesus is the word become flesh. I don't know how you quote Jesus back to Jesus and expect that you're going to win that argument. He knows the entire psalm. And it says also in Psalm 91, he said, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. There's no need to jump. We just rest in the refuge of our God. There's no need to leap off buildings and hope that he's going to catch us. We can, we can dwell in the shelter of of the Most High and abide in, in His shadow over top of us. There's a word for this temptation. I'll call it secularism. You may be wondering, what, secularism? Does, does it really mean that when you jump off, off this? But it's, it's this. It's, it's, I want everything in my life to be all about me or my comfort. That's the pride in life, right? Where we want everything to be focused on us and our comfort and, and what we're doing. And what we do sometimes, we do so others will affirm us. Even in the church, we can do this. We'll serve, we'll, we'll, we'll participate in things, hoping that other people are going to pat us on the back and tell us we're doing a great job. And it's not that encouragement is wrong. It's just if that's what's feeding us, that's not healthy. If that's what's feeding us to continue on in what we're doing, that's not healthy. We don't do it to get the pats on the back and to have other people notice going, wow, man, that's amazing. You went down to the kids and served down there. Whew. Good for you, 
I don't know if I could do that. And then we were like, yeah, that's right. I took one for the team. You know, I, I went and dealt with all your little brats and stuff like that. We, you know, we, we want to take on some type of like, I'm a suffering servant in these moments. But that's not why we do. It's not why we do that. It's not why anybody should do those things. We do it because we're serving God. We're do, we're do, we go downstairs and deal with the kids and, and spend time with the kids because guess what? You were all one of them at one time. Somehow you made it. Somehow some Sunday school teacher knocked enough sense into you that you're still here. You know, So we do it because we want to see the next generation grab a hold of God and love him as much as we do. Not because you know, we want to get aff- affirmation for it. But you see how that subtly shifts in our hearts to being all about us. And it's not about God. We don't need God. God's not in the equation anymore. It became about us being at the center. And as soon as we put us at the center and we take God out of the equation, that's secularism. That's, that's life without God. We don't need him. Our defense to this temptation is humility. Humility. We never see ourselves bigger than we ought to. We never look to, to build ourselves up more than we need to. We face this individually and as the church. As a church, I want us to be proud of who we are. I want us to identify as Life Center Cornwall and, and, and live with the markers that make us who we are and have defining characteristics that people can say, man, I know I, I, they're, they're from Life Center Cornwall. I know they are. Why? Because everybody I've met from there gives radically. Everybody who I've met from there will serve, will give, will, will say a nice word, will encourage you, will help you, will talk about Jesus incessantly. They just don't stop. Everybody from Life Center, I know when they're from Life Center because I know their characteristics. I want you to, to, to have a pride in saying this is who we are as a people of God. And yet at the same time, we want to do this in humility. We want to do this in a way that we, re- we recognize that it's nothing in and of ourselves. All our gifts and talents are from God anyway. All our supernatural gifts that he gives us are his anyway. We're just a conduit that he's using us. And so we humbly allow him to, to work in us and work through us. And when we do so, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be all fun and games. It's not going to always result in wins. Sometimes it's going to result in personal loss and it's going to result in planting seed without seeing a harvest. It's going to result in, in people deriding us because they don't like who we are. They don't like that we incessantly talk about Jesus and how much he loves us and cares for us. They don't want our help and they don't want us to serve them. It's going to result in all sorts of things, but we still go and live this in humility, both individually and as a church. The third temptation, I'm almost done, I promise. Third temptation we can face is this. The devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now this temptation, the desire of the eyes. It's the desire of the eyes. He took him up and he said, all this, All of us, all people, all humanity, all the kingdoms of the world, Satan said, I'll give them all to you. They'll be yours. You can have them all. You can skip the cross. You can skip anything that God has planned for you to get there because I know it's not going to be easy. You can skip all that. I'll give you the easy way to get it all. This, This temptation for us, it's materialism. 
It's making your life all about getting and taking and achieving all that you see. It's the desire of the eyes. You see it in front of you and you want it. Eve saw the fruit. It was good. It was right there. How, how bad could it be? It'll make you happy. We're tempted to compromise, to sell out our faith, our mission, our values for things we want, we see with our eyes, things that are so temporary. Our defense against this temptation is generosity. Again, both individually and as a church. Individually, we want to continue to challenge ourselves to always be able to give generously because of how God has given to us. As a church, we want to do the same. We, want to, we don't want to hold on to it. We don't want to see things and go, man, if we could have that, if we could do that, if we could be this, it's always to live generously. Any if we could it has to be tied to. If we could have this, it means that we could bless this much more. If, if God allowed us to move forward in this place, that means we could have this much bigger impact. And it's not about us. It's about what God wants to do and what God has for us as a church here in Cornwall. Generosity, humility, integrity, if we live with these things, if we make them core and central to who we are, it helps us defend against the trials that will create doubt, the temptation that creates desire, our desire that if we're not careful, if we don't live with that integrity and that humility and that generosity can often give birth to sin, which only has one destination, death. Death of our dreams, death of our purpose, death of our desire. And we don't want that individually or as a church. So my first question, my first closing question. What do, you, what do we do if we have fallen prey to one of these temptations today? Again, Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 that we read earlier. Let's just read it again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here's the next part that's important for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we fall short, if we find ourselves giving in, if we fall and pray to these temptations, if these trials led to doubt, led to temptation, to desire, and led us to sin, we run to the throne of grace and we find our mercy there. We find the mercy that God has for us to help us in our time of need. Like salt, you aren't worthless. You were worth every drop of Christ's blood. And in Jesus and in the power of confessing our sin in regards to the desires of the flesh, the eyes, or the pride of life, we can find forgiveness redemption, and freedom in Jesus today. So I ask you, if you have, if you, if you found yourself giving in to those temptations, run to the throne of grace. Run to, to Jesus and find that forgiveness, redemption, and freedom in him. My second question is this. With humility and integrity and generosity, how do we live victoriously in this spiritual conflict? How do we live victoriously in this spiritual conflict? And as a church, I'd have three things that I'd like for you to, to consider and walk out uh, in this season. One, 
Confession. Confession. We confess our shortcomings to God and to each other. We confess them. Why? Because this ensures we live in humility. If we're always willing to say, listen, here's, here's the things that I struggle with. If we're always willing to do that, it helps us live with that humility, doesn't it? And again, not just confession to God. That, that's great. He sees it all anyway. And he wants us to, to confess our sins. But to have somebody, a trusted confidant, or a few people that you can, you can confess these things to so that you know that your closet isn't getting full and f- more and more full of junk. And instead, you keep that, that closet empty. There's nothing lurking in that closet that can come back to accuse you and say, you see, you know, you can't, you can't serve in the church in that capacity. You can't step into that authority with God. You remember what's in your closet. You know, you open that door, somebody sees what's in there. You just disqualified yourself. So what do we do? We, we keep that closet door wide open so that trusted people in our lives can hold us and, and, and carry us through our moments where we don't feel like we're enough. And again, with the grace uh, of God and, and others that stand with us, we do that. Number two, character. Again, we commit to a life of integrity, generosity, and humility. So we confess. We live with character. And the third one is community. Every preacher has to have alliteration in there, right? So confession, character, and community. We are called to unity, aren't we? We are called to care for, build up, and protect each other as the body of Christ. And if we do these things, again, everybody's going to stumble and fall. Everybody's going to have a trip up here and there. We're not looking for perfection, but we're looking for a posture of humility, a posture of openness before God. So confession, character, and community. Let's work on these things as the body of Christ, both individually and corporately. John Bloom, he said this. He said, the hardest part about fighting these temptations is that we, we often don't feel like we want to escape in the moment. It's true, isn't it? We found that we were doubting and we found a different way and we found a way that may feel easier and we don't want to escape it. But don't be, don't be surprised by that. Remember, fighting temptation means trusting promises over perceptions. Trusting promises over perceptions. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Follow the promises of truth, not the appetites of error. How many times do we do that? We perceive something in front of us and we want to believe it because we seeing is believing. We look in front of us and we go, man, I need to do this because of this trial facing me. But instead, let's trust the promises of God rather than what we can see in the natural. We need to trust God. So let's pray today. God, we trust you, Jesus who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We trust that you will provide a way of escape that is more persistent, more powerful, and more satisfying than what our temptations are promising. God, we look to confess to you and to each other. We look to build character and we look to to live in community to guard ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. 
God, we don't want any one of us to be to taken out or to be, to be deceived by the enemy and, and wander off and do our own thing. And as a community, we don't want to be deceived into only thinking about ourselves and only be focused on ourselves rather than your mission, your kingdom advancing. God, help us to live this out. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.